Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Well, you know the typical response. He is risen. Amen. Good job. You did well, man. Happy uh, Resurrection Day to all of you. So what we're going to do is we're going to study, go right into um, the morning of the resurrection, and we're going to look at through the lens of Mary Magdalene and the uh, amazing thing that she went through and the the faith that's being taught there. Um, Because what you're going to see a constant theme in this passage is the idea that faith doesn't require that you see a miracle. Faith requires that you believe in God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. And you're gonna see John involved in it, Peter involved in it, but John is trying to communicate a message through Mary Magdalene. And um, let me give you some disclaimers about Mary Magdalene. um, her Hebrew name is Miriam. She's named after Moses' sister. Uh, and Magdalite means uh, she probably comes from the region of Magdala, right there in the Galilean area. And so she would have been with Jesus pretty much uh, almost his whole entire ministry. That being the case, there's a lot of misnomers about Mary Magdalene. And I don't know why this happens. All they have to do, read, uh, do is read the scriptures. Uh, they typically port- uh, portray her as some type of prostitute and, or that she was the one prostitute that, that came and kissed the Lord's feet and cried on his feet and dried his, uh, his, uh, his feet with her hair. That's, that's not her. That she, her issue was she had seven demons uh, that Jesus had exercised out of her. And so, so she wasn't this woman of immorality or this woman of, of, of promiscuous. Um, she had problems with demons. So anyway, Jesus exercised her out of uh, those demons out of her. And um, she is also not the Mary who anointed the Lord's feet um, before uh, the, am I right? Okay, I'll just keep going. Um, that was Mary Lazarus's brother that anointed the Lord right before his death. Um, the, the, uh, she was Lazarus, I didn't say, sister. I'm off. She was Mary, uh, this, not, not this Mary, but the other Mary was Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister who anointed the Lord. So this is not her as well. But um, somehow... <laughs> It all gets lumped up together in her for some reason, and people think that's that's there was one Mary, but there was plenty plenty of other Marys that did different things. She possibly was one of the financiers for the Lord's ministry, and uh, she seems to be from ancient uh, history um, somewhat wealthy. And once he had exercised the seven demons out of her, she became a major contributor to his ministry. She uh, is also uh, stuck by him closer than any of the other apostles. Um, She was there at the crucifixion. She was there at the burial. Um, She didn't leave his side. And so she was very devout to him. And um, sometimes 
the, the theologians call her uh, tongue-in-cheek, the apostle to the apostles, because she's the one who sees Jesus after his resurrection. She's the first one, and then she reports back to them. So um, she has a lot of incredible experiences, but the, the key with her is she's very faithful and dedicated to the Lord, and that's where you're going to pick up the scene. So with her, what did she see? She was at the crucifixion. A lot of the disciples had scattered and strike the, sh- the, the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so she stayed with him. She stayed through it, through with, with the trials like, like John and Peter and all the way through the cru- crucifixion. And what did she see? She saw these, these elements of the Lord on the cross, these different sayings. Now it was about the sixth hour, that's about 12 noon, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour, so that's three o'clock. Then the sun was dark, and so everything becomes dark because the judgment of, uh, of our sins were being laid upon Jesus, and he was burying our sin, and that's why everything turned black. So she saw this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote from Psalm 22. And uh, the Psalm 22 talks about how he will actually be pierced and crucified and how at the end of it, God will resurrect him and and there will be a rejoicing after that. So he quotes that. But he quotes that at three o'clock. So nothing is said between 12 and three o'clock on the cross because the sin of the world is being laid upon him at that point in time. So why does he say that? Because... His, his humanity has been separated from fellowship with God the Father. And he's never experienced that. But it's, it, the separation happens because of the sins that are being put on him. So she sees this. And after he says this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, I thirst. Because he's just experienced basically hell for all of us. And the concept of, of hell or the lake of fire is people will thirst in hell. And so he says this. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, they gave him some sour wine. He says, it is finished, which is to tell us die. So the atonement had been made. The propitiation for our sins had been made. And it is done now. It's signed, sealed, and delivered by the Messiah. And this puts the new covenant into effect. Okay. So she's watching all of this. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Jesus is the one who gives up his life. Notice at the end of this, it it didn't matter how much they beat him. It didn't matter how much they whipped him with a cat of nine tails. It didn't matter how long he was on the cross. He is the one that gives up his life. It's a voluntary sacrifice. No one takes his life is the idea. That's why he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he's going to allow his spirit to leave his body, which is death. And then having said this, he breathed his last. And then John adds, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Notice how he's in full control. That Jesus bows his head first. It's not like he died and then his head dropped. He that bowed his head and then gave up the spirit at that point, showing that he's in full control of his death. That means then that Martha, I'm sorry, Martha, Mary, I'm off, I'm off today, uh, Mary is watching all of this. Does she comprehend it all? No, she doesn't. She doesn't comprehend all of this. She will later. 
And she sees this as a defeat. She sees this as the end. She sees that all of his ministry now is gone. It's over. Even though he told them that he would be buried and rise again. And he he kept reiterating that to all of them. I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. There I will be killed. There and then I will resurrect. He kept telling them that, telling them that. And despite that, all she can see is this. And to her, it's a tragedy. Now to us, we're looking at it hindsight. It's a victory, right? It's a victory. Our sins have been paid. She's not getting this. And here's the, here's the principle you have to understand. People only see what they expect. They did, she did not expect a resurrection. She did not expect a victory. And that's the controller of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God was spoken by Jesus. So that should have given her the expectation. But instead, her expectation didn't listen to the word of God. So therefore, it didn't expand any further, and therefore, she only could see this as a tragedy. That's a principle for all of us in the room. Your expectations are based on what you know about the word of God. If you know the word of God, that's where you can broaden your expectations about what you think God will do in the situation, how he will redeem the situation, how he will make things right at the end. So a lot of people look at their own lives as tragedy. And they think about their lives and how it went, and they're like, man, I wish this wouldn't have happened. I wish that wouldn't have happened. I wish I could have made a better decision here, and this and that. And they only look at their lives as a tragedy. They only look at it through pain. They only look at it through remorse and regret. And, hey, like, I understand that. But God's trying to tell you, wait, 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 second. Wait a second. There's more for you. I have prepared a new future for you. I have prepared a new life for you. And I understand what you went through, God is saying. But I promise you that good will come out of this and I will reconcile everything and I will wipe away all your tears and I will make it right in the next life. And that's where our faith comes in. That no matter what tragedies or or problems we go through, our faith tells us it will one day be made right. And that gives us the ability to move on. But that's not where she's at. She can only see the tragedy. And quite frankly, I don't wanna live a life where I just look at my life as a a complete tragedy because it didn't go the way I wanted. That's a lack of faith on my part if I do that. So that's what's happening. It's a lack of faith on her part. So after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And so you'll see Joseph of Arimathea is a believer. Now he's going to act it out, actually, and, and, and publicly identify with Messiah. But Mary is there. Mary is with this whole scene of the burial of the Lord, okay? And Nicodemus is also involved. So Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, 100 pounds are going to put on the body of the Lord, okay? 100 pounds. So she's there. She's seen the whole thing. 
play itself out. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So what the custom of the Jews is, uh, was uh, to bury was they would first wash the body, and then they would wrap it in strips of linen, and kind of like, uh, I, I, some theologians say this goes back to their days in Egypt, where they learned that the, how the Egyptians would wrap the bodies, like the mummies and stuff like that, that they, they carried that over from the Exodus and brought that into a Jewish practice where they would, would, would do that. They wouldn't go the full monte how Egyptians buried their dead because Egyptians would take out the organs and all that stuff, but they did wrap the body. Now, here's the funny thing. The strips of linen should remind you of something. It should remind you of when he was born, okay? They, Mary wraps her baby, the baby the Lord Jesus Christ, in strips of linen. And what does that signify? That, that the baby, the Messiah, is born to die. That's what the point is. That the, the linen wrapping, uh, wrappings of the baby in the swaddling clothes points to this day of wrapping his body and burying it. So anyway, she's there. So now let's pick up a little bit um, uh, what's happening at this point in time. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid, probably Joseph of Arimathea's. So they, they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. And so they put him in something that looked like that kind of tomb. That's a typical tomb of the first century. Usually had a large uh, rolling boulder that they would put over the front of this. Then they would put the body in there. Now, typical Jewish burial went like this. You would put the body in there, and you'd wrap the body, and then you'd put the aloes and spices to keep the smell down. And within a year, the limestone would, would um, strip away any flesh of the body. So after a year, you would come back and then take the bones of the person and put it in an ossuary. And you're like, how, how could they, you have such rapid decay within one year that the body was left in bones? It was because of the limestone. Uh, the limestone, believe it or not, the nickname for limestone that they would bury people in is flesh eater. And if you put a body in limestone, in a, in a tomb of limestone, and with the heat of the area and the different climate aspects of it, the flesh would be, be gone completely within one year. And then they could they'd come back and bury uh, the person in an ossuary. That's where the guy, remember the guy said to Jesus, let me first go and bury my father before I follow you. He was waiting for that year period to come so he could put his father's bones in an ossuary. And Jesus said, I don't, I, I, we don't have time for you to wait a year for you to bury your father. Anyway, there's something different though. So they're going about things as a typical Jewish person would bury a body. Again, not thinking resurrection, but thinking finality. This is it, it's over, he's dead. Okay, now we go to, Mar uh, uh, to Mary Magdalene. She's the first one at the tomb. Sometimes in your other gospels, they'll put her together with other women. She was with them, but she's the first to get there. The other women arrived behind her. Uh, she got there before daybreak. The other women got there when the sun was rising. So she got there first, okay? So this is what she experienced. She's the first one at the tomb early in the morning. Now, the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, so the sun hasn't risen, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, we know from other passages that uh, uh, an angel came and moved the stone. Uh, the guards, uh, the Roman guards fell dead. You remember that? Uh, fell as dead. And it was an angel that moved the, 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 I don't know what you want to call it, the rock that looks like a wheel type of thing. They, and it was tons of weight. You had to have so many people, a group of guys moving that. So this angel obviously does it, no problem. He has the power to do it. Okay, so it's been removed. Now, it's not that Jesus waited for the angel to move the stone. Jesus has already left the tomb. He has already been resurrected. And there was a great earthquake when he was resurrected. And then the angel comes and moves the stone. The stone is not to let him out. He's already passed through the, the, the tomb. The stone being removed is a evidence that he is not in the tomb, okay? He's already left the tomb. So the rolled stone is evidence that he's not there. That's what the angel is trying to, to show. So when she gets there, it's moved to the side. In her mind, she should have, that's, that's the word, she should have, because of listening to the Messiah, expected that when she saw a rolled stone move to the side, she should have expected resurrection, but she doesn't. She will not go past that. So it's a deficiency in her belief in God's word. Anyway, she ran, came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that's John, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So again, because of her lack of faith, her lack of faith causes her to come to a conclusion that's wrong, that his body is missing. He's still dead, but his body is missing, so someone must have taken away his body. Now, I did a little research on this, on grave robbing in the first century. There was a lot of grave robbing in the first century, and then by somewhere in the 40s, 41, 45, I can't remember, A.D., um, Rome put a major edict out on you know, not having people grave rob, otherwise they would have a, a very stiff penalty. So it is true that during this time, there was a lot of grave, rob, uh, grave robbing. And so she's using what she understands about the context that she's in, that possibly someone came and stole the body, which would be very common. But the evidence is going to militate against that theory, and she can't see it past it. Number one, there was a Roman guard attached to it. So if they gave up their guardianship of the tomb, then they die, according to Caesar. Okay? Number two, there's a seal on the tomb put in there by Pilate, and it's the Roman seal of Caesar. Anyone messing with that, that seal, is of an attack on Caesar himself. So whoever would do this would certainly get the death penalty. So this is how the Romans prevented grave robbing by sealing the tomb. Obviously, the Jews asked for that, but that is another indication to her is, wait a second, 
what person is going to come and break a Roman seal with Caesar's name on it? No one would do that. But again, her expectations can't go there. She cannot see the evidence because she doesn't believe at this point that he's resurrected. And that's the key about faith. So anyway, here's a principle. Faith in God's words allows us to interpret the situation correctly and causes us to carry out the right tasks. Now, if she would listen to the Lord's word, I'm going to be resurrected in three days, she wouldn't have come to the tomb to finish the job of anointing the body. That's why they came. Uh, After Sabbath was over, it would have been Saturday night. The stores were still open, by the way, after sundown in Israel in the first century. So what they did the night before was they went and bought the spices to complete the job. And then in the morning, they came back on Sunday morning to anoint the body um, with more than even what Nicodemus did. So she, she, again, what is her mindset? The action is, I'm going to continue to anoint the body because he's not coming back, he's dead. So she's not thinking straight. Anyway, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And obviously this is John and Peter. Now I want you to watch this interaction about their faith and what's going on here. And he, this is, this is John, okay, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Now, this is a key thing for John because notice that it's focus, focusing in on John seeing something. And he is seeing an empty tomb, but he sees the grave clothes. Now, it's going to explain how the grave clothes are there, but here's the thing. This is what convinces John that the resurrection has happened, okay? So he's the first disciple to get this. Now, Peter's going to be a little bit slow, and as he always is, right, as you know Peter, he's impetuous, but he's a little slow, okay? Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So John wouldn't go in it. He didn't need to go in it. Now, there's several theories of why John doesn't go into the tomb. One theory is he could be from the Levite tribe, that John is a Levite and therefore didn't want to uh, uh, make himself unpurified by going into a tomb because that, that would make you unpurified. That's one theory. The other theory is he doesn't need to go into the tomb because of his faith. He doesn't need to see it, uh, uh, see the body of the Lord. He just needs to see the empty tomb. And this is the theme of John, by the way, that seeing Jesus is not necessary for those of faith. All they need to be told is what happened by the word of God and they believe. And that's the theme that's going on here. So John doesn't need to see Jesus in front of him like doubting Thomas. He just sees the clothes and says, that's it, he resurrected. It's that, that's how John reacts to things. And that's the model that the gospel of John is trying to portray. So John will always be contrasted with Peter and Peter takes a longer time to get things, okay? So anyway, what did they see there? And he saw the linen clothes lying there, 
And the handkerchief, that's a bad translation, it's a sardarian. And a sardarian is how they would wrap the head separately from the mummified body that they would wrap, okay? It's a sardarian that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, now let's unpack this, because this is fascinating. And this is why John believes. So you have the linen clothes lying there, and what the Greek is trying to convey is that it's not like Lazarus when he wrote, rose from the dead, when Jesus resuscitated him back from the dead, where they, Jesus said, now take the, the grave clothes off of him. The grave clothes are in the same shape as they were on his body, okay? They haven't been unwound, okay? No, so that indicates that as his body is resurrecting, he goes through the linen wrappings. And all that's there is like this cocoon in the same shape as his body, but his body's not there. Does that make sense? There was no unwrapping it. His body, when it resurrected, just passed through the wrappings and then passed through the tomb. And then later, he'll pass through a door, indicating that the resurrected body that we will get to has the ability to defy um, our physical world because it's a spiritual body, it's a real physical body, but because it has spiritual dimensions to it, the physical laws don't bind it. So he can pass through doors or anything, and one day your body will be like that, a glorified body that can pass through walls and, 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 and travel different places just like that. So again, it's a picture of our body as well. So the, so as John looks in, you can imagine if it was a grave robber, the grave robber would have undone the, the strips to steal the body because why would they take the strips off a dead body? Because they were looking for gold and silver and rings and necklaces that were on the body. So they would take the wrappings off and steal you know, the, the, the gold, silver, whatever from the body, that's how they did. So you can imagine a robber going in there and do, would just thrash the whole scene. But as they looked, they're like, there's, there's no one that's, that, that's robbed the grave. The clothes are still there, but it's in the cocoon shape. And then they look at the Saldarian that was wrapping his head. And typically a Saldarian was made to keep the, the, the mouth from being open, is to lock the jaw and then they would wrap it, and that's how the head would be. But when they noticed the, the, the cloth, the Saldarian, they called the handkerchief, but that's not what it is, it's folded together in a place by itself. So it's, it's the concept of, yes, he permeates out of the Saldarian, out of, out of the cocoon shape of the mummified strips of linen, and then goes back and then rolls and folds the Saldarian and puts it right there somewhere else in the tomb. Now, again, militating against a grave robbing 
because who would take the time to fold the Saldarian and put it there and leave it there? Well, it's obvious it was the Lord who rolled and folded the Saldarian and passed through it, right? But here's the key. Why did Jesus take the time to fold the Saldarian? It's an indication of something. It is an indication that he is the God of order, not chaos. The chaos that happened to him by man of the beatings, of the torture, the cat of nine tails, the crown of thorns, the piercing is pure chaos being leveled against the Lord. And then along with the demonic forces being leveled against him, mocking him, all surrounding the cross, um, according to Psalm 22. So he had demonic forces, he had human forces, all creating this chaotic event. And in the chaos comes order. There's an order to how he's buried. He's buried among the rich in, an, uh, in a grave that's unused. Then there's order into the resurrection, order of how his body passes out, an order of how he folds a napkin, and the order of how he will appear. So what you have the theme of is a theme of creation. A new creation has happened in the resurrection. That's what it indicates, that the resurrection goes back and points to creation. Why? Because something brand new has been created. A glorified body for the Lord. So when you see creation and back in Genesis, you will see chaos. And then out of that chaos, God creates order. And he does it in six days. It's the same theme. So John is trying to say it's a new creation. Now remember, the, 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 the term first day is being used. How come they're not saying day three after he was, resur- after he was crucified? They will constantly use, the writers, first day, first day of the week, first day. They keep pointing that, pointing that out. Why? Because we obviously know that Saturday is the Sabbath. It still is, okay? Sunday is the first day of the week, but it is also, in Hebrew terminology, the eighth day. So it's the first day of the week, but it's also the eighth day because it follows the Sabbath. And what does the eighth day mean? Eight means new beginnings, new beginnings. And then the first day is also a new beginning. A new beginning has dawned. A new creation has dawned. That's what it's trying to say. Okay, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. So John finally goes in and he saw and believed. And that's it. Sees the clothes, the way they're laid out. He says, okay, that's a resurrection. He permeated through the the clothes and the clothes are still there in the shape. I believe. It's a continual theme. He doesn't even see the resurrected body of the Lord. He just believes from the clothes. That's how faith works. You don't necessarily have to see the miracle to believe. The generations that saw the greatest miracles the Exodus generation, Jesus' generation, and in the future, the tribulation generation, 
that, those are the three epochs of the most miracles. And yet, it's the eras of the less faith. Hardly anyone will believe. So, I mean, look at the Exodus. They see all the miracles of the Red Sea partying, the plagues, and the first thing they do when they're in Sinai, what do they do? Worship a calf, right? I mean, it's like, dude, you saw all the miracles that anyone would, would love to see, but it didn't cause any faith. That's right. Miracles don't cause faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's continue on. And look at John, he says this, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went again to their homes. So Peter is still not getting this because he doesn't, number one, he doesn't know the Old Testament scriptures like he should. And number two, they haven't listened to the, the, the Lord saying this. So he's perplexed. So let's go back to Mary. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping as she, as she wept. She stooped down and looked into the tomb. And basically, she's going to see the same scene. But the weeping here is not a quiet weeping. It's a wailing. It's a wailing. That's how grief-stricken she is. It's a wailing type of grief. And then she, she sees, what does she see? And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had laid. Now, I would think at this point you would say, okay, there's two angels sitting there. Something's up, Right? <laughs> Okay, well, what happened? It's almost comical to look at this. And you're like, Mary, wake up. But again, what's keeping her back? Her expectations. He's dead, he's dead, he's dead. That's all that's in her head. That's why she, she's looking at the angels. Now, two, you know, these are messenger angels, okay? Third class angels. These type of angels have no wings and they always appear as young men. But there's something different about these young men is that they're wearing white, symbolizing purity, holiness, okay? And the other passages in the gospel say their, their, their clothes were dazzling, bright. And I want you to see this. Seeing an angel doesn't cause belief. Doesn't cause belief. Wow, that's stunning to me. That's a little shocking that you could see angels. Well. If I take that principle and I put it into the tribulation where all the other miracles will happen and, and supernatural events in the tribulation, they see flying angels around the, uh, flying around the, uh, the earth, giving the gospel out to everybody, and yet they don't believe. They see demons attacking people in the tribulation, and yet they don't believe. You see what I'm saying? Faith doesn't come by seeing the supernatural. It comes by hearing the word of God. Now, notice that the angels are on the front end and the, the, the bottom end of where they laid the body. You, you, can you picture that? That is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And in the, on the top is the mercy seat, and the two angels are on each side, right? That's what's happening at the grave site. It's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. So what does that mean? That, the, that, that, that Jesus is the mercy seat. He is where you find mercy. He's where you find grace. And the two angels are, are bookending it, just like the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, but let's think a little further about the Ark of the Covenant. Look what's in the Ark of the Covenant. What are the items in the Ark of the Covenant? The manna, right? You see the commandments that were broken, 
And then you see Aaron's rod, which is an um, almond limb that budded. Okay, What does all this mean? The manna is the hidden manna that's in the Ark of the Covenant to represent the provision God made for Israel, but also the provision God makes through the Messiah because he said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the true manna, Messiah was saying. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, metaphorically speaking, right? He is what God has provided as the bread of life. That's the manna. The stone tablets, the law, which we couldn't keep, Messiah kept all 613 perfectly and can give us that righteousness, right? Now, what is Aaron's rod? Aaron's rod is a symbol that when Aaron had this staff to prove that he was the true high priest, follow me on this, when there was contention about who's the high priest, who's the high priest, Aaron's rod was a rod of an almond tree, from an almond tree. And the, the miracle that happened was the, the, it budded from death to life that proved Aaron is the true high priest. The resurrection of the almond limb is a picture of the resurrection of the true high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is Messiah. It's a picture of Jesus that's inside the ark. And then that, that blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's what's happening here is a symbol of the Ark of the Covenant is being communicated to Mary and she's not getting it. She's not catching it because of her expectations. Notice, if you don't believe properly, you will be limited in what you see God working in life about. You will, you will not see him do certain things even though he's doing it because of your expectations. It's a picture of that. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? This is a rebuke, by the way, because she shouldn't be weeping and wailing. It's a mild rebuke. And she said to him, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's talking to angels. And she's still, I don't know where he's at. What do you mean? You're seeing the Ark of the Covenant right in front of you. What do you mean? Aaron's rod has budded. It's him. So here's the thing. Faith in God's word causes us to know that evil can never triumph over the purposes and plans of the Lord. Because think about this. She's convinced that evil people have stolen the body. She has watched evil people put him on the cross and mock him and spit on him, pull his beard out, hit him with a cat of nine tails repeatedly, and we don't know how, how long they went. They kept doing this. And she's watched evil people do this to him. So her expectation is, this must be done by evil people. She can't get past that. She can only see the evil. She can't see the good and the triumph of the good. And that's why the principle is, if you believe in God's word, I will rise on the third day, it shows you that evil can never triumph. It can never stop the plans and purposes. What they thought they were doing to Messiah, what Satan thought he was doing to Messiah and stopping the whole thing, stopping salvation, killing the Messiah, actually worked according to plan. They did exactly what God wanted them to do 
in order to have Christ pay for our sins and do so much more with his atoning death. This is the nature of evil that you have to understand. All, if we just focus in on evil and don't see the plan and purposes of what God's doing, all you're going to do is see the evil. And that, that will kill you. This is why, like, when I teach prophecy, people are saying, well, Brandon, it's just so negative. It's all these negative things. No, 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 you don't understand. Yes, there's a, 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 an evil aspect to it, but what's the purpose? God is moving things in a direction for a reason. You're, you are to see the hope behind it, that he's going to destroy evil, that they're not going to get away with all this, just like we see today. They're not going to get away with this eventually. God is going to put an end to it. So now they're proposing a bill that would criminalize offensive remarks, 100 meters of drag performances. They're trying to shut us up, but they won't prevail at the end. Minnesota introduces legislation criminalizing parents who refuse sex change operations for children. They won't win. Dress code, dressing your Sunday's best, Los Angeles LGBT Center advertises all ages drag march scheduled for Easter. On Easter, April 9th, we will gather in our Sunday best to show the world what we're made out of and that we're not going back. It looks evil. It looks like it's overwhelming, right? At the end, this ends by God. God will put an end to this. Mega church pastor, this is, we don't have any support in the churches. Mega church pastor says, not supporting same-sex marriage is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. His day is coming. Do you understand this? That day is coming for him. So when you look at that, you're like, wow, the church is really declining. It is, but God is going to make it right. Drag queens, whole drag queen story at church in Chesterland, Ohio this week. They're not going to get away with this. Beth Moore's daughter exploits Nashville victims, vows to retaliate against conservatives by teaching kids to be woke. Look at Beth Moore's daughter's tweet. If I have to homeschool my kids to keep them alive, I will give them an education so woke, so social justice oriented, they will be a stench in the nostrils of the GOP. I will take pleasure in it every single day. I wonder where she learned that from. Mama is right. Woke ideology is clearly deadly. It's time to ban it everywhere. I agree. It is time to ban it. But God will have the final word on it. They will not get away with this. Then you go to Israel. Gaza rockets fire as Lebanon launches 34 missiles towards Israel. At some point, God is going to intervene for Israel and save them at the second coming. This nonsense will end. U.S. training and arming 5,000 Palestinian authority troops in Jordan. Did you know that? We are training the terrorists. We are training the terrorists. What do you think they're going to do with that training? Go after Jews. If all you see is the evil, you're not seeing it properly. You must see that God is allowing this for his plans and purposes, just like he allowed the cross for his plans and purposes. And in the end, the evil accomplished his will and didn't even know it. And that's what's happening here. Continue on. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Wow. We've seen angels. We've seen a rolled tomb. We've seen the, the grave clothes. And now we see Jesus, and she still doesn't get it. You think, 
don't be too hard on her because we would probably react the same way. We, were, we would be in the stupor of not being able to see this. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, woman, which is a very polite way of speaking, like ma'am, why are you weeping? Again, that's what the angel said. Why are you weeping? It's a, it's a mild rebuke. You shouldn't be weeping because what I told you, you should be rejoicing that you see an empty tomb. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking? What kind of Messiah are you looking for? Are you looking for the dead Messiah you expect to be in a tomb? Is that who you're looking for? See, she has the wrong concept of the Messiah. What Messiah are you looking for? She's supposing him to be a gardener. It doesn't, it doesn't look good at this point, right? Sir, if you have carried him away, there she's still thinking someone carried him away. But break the Roman seal. It's like Mary. You're so confused and dazed. It's because of your lack of faith. You're still stuck on it, man. You're looking at a dead savior rather than a resurrected savior. And it's, it's, it, look what it's doing to her perspective. Oh, boy. Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Mary, are you out of your mind? Even if they took a body, you're going to lift a body of a man, carry that body to where it needs to be? She's not even thinking straight. What are you doing? Here's the principle. Faith in God's word causes us to seek the living Savior and not dead saviors. That's the difference. She's looking for the wrong Savior. Jesus said to her, Miriam. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Now wait, what's happened here? She can't recognize him. She thinks the body is stolen. What wakes her up? The word of the Messiah. Miriam. Boom! It wakes her up. Why? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. The word of God is now being spoken. Miriam, whoa, and that's what wakes her up. See, that's where faith is found, in the word of God. She, she is standing in front of the resurrected Messiah. A miracle is standing in front of her, and she still can't see the miracle. You see what's happening here, what John's trying to convey? It's the word of God that wakes her up and snaps her back into reality and in her faith. The word of God. And then immediately, Rabboni. Now maybe they say, theologians will say that the new resurrected body, the glorified body, it seems to be there's a pattern here that people can't identify who this is. Uh, the road of Emmaus and other people can't identify Jesus. So maybe there's something in the new constitution of the new body um, that seems to be changing the physical features of us. I, I can say this, if, the, if the, um, the, the resurrected body that we get is perfect, then no wonder people wouldn't recognize me. Because the perfect you versus what you look like now, I look like 100 miles of bad road, man. Um, no wonder if I got a new resurrected body, um, I would look different. Hey, what happened to you? It looked like you had some Botox. Looks like you had some, some uh, fa a facelift, Brandon. I, I couldn't recognize you. That's right, I have a glorified body now. But is there something about the glorified body that becomes unrecognizable for just a little bit? Um, and then finally, the Lord opens up. And what is this? 
my sheep hear my voice. That's what it comes down to, right? Now, faith in God's word allows us to hear God's voice. God speaks to you, and when he speaks to you, the only way you're gonna hear it is through faith. That's how you know. But watch this. Now, now we're gonna get real tricky here. Now, follow me, because I can lose you on this one, so follow me. And you're not gonna see this in your commentaries because it's a Jewish background understanding, okay? Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, let me unpack the, the concept of the brethren. Notice what it says, my brethren. It's the first time he will use this, my brethren thing. What is that? Because he has tasted death and resurrected, he is the firstborn among the dead. Uh, 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 he's the first, he's the captain that will lead us all in the resurrection. He's the first. But because he is 100% God, but 100% human, after doing th this, he now, you and I can identify him on a brotherly level on, in his humanity, okay? So he's one of us, even though he's 100% God. He's, that's, he's called the God-man. And because of that, he then can make atonement for those who believe, and he has made it, and therefore, if you believe, you become a child of God, and your big brother is the second person of the Trinity, the God-man. Now, again, you're not related to his deity, but you're related to his humanity. Therefore, you are adopted into his family, right? And the adoption, the final adoption is, is our resurrection, and therefore, he calls us now, believers, brethren or sisters. That's how he calls us now because he identifies us that closely. And that goes to his high priestly role as high priest. He was prophet in the gospels. He's now functioning as priest, high priest. And then when he comes back, he will function as king, prophet, priest, and king. Okay. And he says to them, I am ascending Anabano is a present tense. I ascend now to my father and your father. So now his relationship with the father is different than ours, but we have that relationship with the father. To my God, from his humanity's perspective, he's referring to God and to our God. Okay. What is this idea of ascending right now? It has nothing to do with what happens 40 days later. That's a mistake because people don't know the Jewish background on the language being used here. The language is present tense. I am ascending right now, don't touch me. Yet, after the, this ascension, he's, he calls Thomas to touch him. And they touch him and feel him and all that for the next 40 days. But at this critical moment, after the resurrection, he tells her, don't touch me. Do not touch. The only way you would know that is if you knew the high priest's role under the Mosaic system and what the high priest does. He is now in the role of the high priest. Okay? So this is high priest language. This goes back to the tabernacle. This goes back to that period of time when the high priest would come in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and notice what the high priest would wear, only white, okay? And he would dab the goat's blood on the corners of the mercy seat, 
during that period of time. Remember that, that's Yom Kippur, okay? And it would be to cleanse not only the nation of Israel, but everything else, okay? Therefore, Hebrews 9 tells you what happened at this ascension. Because like people ask, well, where was Jesus going when he would disappear? He was going back to heaven. Back, he was going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until finally at the ascension, he finally leaves, and he won't come back after that. So there were many ascensions in, bef- in before the final ascension. And in this ascension, this is what he did. But Christ... Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Talking about the tabernacle of heaven, that is, not of this creation, but the real tabernacle in heaven. With his own blood, what did he do? He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens should be purified with these. What? But the heavenly things themselves, which... Uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. What is Hebrews trying to say? Let me boil it down. The reason she is told, don't touch me, is he is using high priest language. Now, here's what would happen on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would wear his colorful clothes. Remember, it was typically blue, and he had all kinds of woven colors and the stones that he would wear in his high priestly duties. Okay, On the Day of Atonement, he would take that off and then go into a mikvah and do a ritual purification in the water and then come out, and he would put all white on, like you saw in this picture here. In, this, in that picture, he put it all white on, okay? Then he would go do his priestly duties for Yom, uh, Yom Kippur and go in there and take the, bloods, uh, the blood of the goat and then do his, 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 his activities in the temple, making atonement for that day for Yom Kippur. Once he was done with his activities, he went back to the mikvah, took the white robes off, dipped himself back in a ritual purification again, and then put on the high priestly garments, the colorful garments of the blue and the different colors and the stones. So that's the pattern, and here's the key. The key was once the high priest put on the white clothes after the first mikvah and went about his duties to make atonement, you were not to touch him. If you touched him, you defile the sacrifice. And therefore, he had to be left alone and untouched that whole period of time. And then once he's done with a second mikvah and put on the regular priestly clothes, then you could touch him at that point in time. But you couldn't touch him between the first and second mikvah. Okay? Now, what does this mean? It's not pointing to atonement for humans. It's not pointing to that. Atonement has already been made on the cross. So why does the Hebrew writer say it's necessary that Jesus in this ascension took his blood to heaven? It says to cleanse the heavenly places, the holy places. There are two holy places, the holy of holies and the holy place 
in the, the heavenly tabernacle. There's two places, okay? Why would he need to cleanse the tabernacle in heaven with his own blood? Because someone has defiled it. You, you, you're catching on? If you read Ezekiel 28, it talks about the fall of Satan. And in, I think, like verse 18, somewhere in that neighborhood, it says, you have defiled your sanctuaries, plural, the holy of holies and the holy place. In heaven, you have defiled the sanctuaries. So guess who's going to cleanse the sanctuary of heaven after he did the revolt in heaven? Jesus, at this ascension, is acting as a high priest. He's taking his blood, not so much for human atonement, but to atone for what Satan did by desecrating heaven. And therefore, his blood is used to cleanse the heavenly temple from what Satan did. And then Jesus returns, and then you can touch him again. That's the reason behind this whole thing about Mary, don't touch me. Because he has to take his blood up there. So when you get to heaven, you will see Christ's blood. It is there on the mercy seat, the real mercy seat. It is there. That's where he took it. And so that's the only reason that, that comes to explaining why this weird situation happened. Let's continue. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. And of course, they don't believe her. Of course, it's like, no, we're not gonna believe you. And by the way, in the Jewish law, women couldn't testify in a court of law. It didn't matter how many women saw a scene, how many women witnessed something, they wouldn't recognize it in a court of law. So the, the men, I, you know, part of the culture, they're not gonna believe her. And they thought the other women that came back, they were out of their minds. So that she doesn't get, she doesn't, isn't believed. And why? Because they won't believe the word. So God has to reveal himself to him in, in, a, in another appearance later that night. What's the point? It is written in, in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. And, and that's Isaiah 54, 13. The interpretation of that, we go no further than the Messiah himself. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from me come, uh, of the Father comes to me. What does that mean? Learning of the Father means learning the scriptures. That if you learn the scriptures and you believe in what God has said in the scriptures, you will have no problem with Jesus, right? That's, that's the thing. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that's the principle we wanna make sure we have. You want, to, you want to expand your understanding of what God's plan and purposes are? Believe in his word, and you will see more unlike what Mary saw. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from Mary's life. It's a picture of our faith sometimes where we, we lack faith. We don't see what we need to see. But, Father, help us to trust your word. When you say something, you mean it. And when you say you're gonna do something, you do it. Help us to believe in your word. And Father, we thank you so much for this Resurrection Sunday to celebrate the approval of the sacrifice by the resurrection. We pray if there's anyone here that hasn't come to faith, they would do so today. 
They would understand Christ died for their sins on a cross, was buried and rose on the third day to give everlasting life to anyone who will simply believe his word. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? We're gonna have a brief time of invitation. Our pastors and deacons will be up here. If you need any prayer for your life, you need to make a decision for the Lord, come talk to them or they'll pray for you, okay? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I stand Amen. You can remain standing, Pastor Brett. Close us up, brother. All right, let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you died for us. Lord, we're thankful that you... <clears throat> conquer the grave, Father. We just ask that you would help us strengthen our faith, Lord, and, and help us to study your word and grow and mature. Father, give us boldness so we can go out these walls and spread the good news, Lord. We just ask for wisdom and protection as we go out through our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.